Forward Guidance is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Patrick Sonner, Head of Macro Strategy at Swiss Re. Patrick is focusing on macro. Patrick, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, I hope you are well as well. And thanks for having me, Jack. It's my pleasure, Patrick. What is, are you focusing most in the macro world? Are you focusing on on rates, on the economy, and, and what's your outlook for, for this year? Well, I, I focus on everything that really changes the economic inflation rates and longer-term capital market outlook. And together with the team, um, look a lot at alternative scenarios that could be important for the insurance industry and you know institutional asset allocators overall. Now, with regards to the economic outlook, I think there is quite a distinction between geography. So if we maybe start with the US, then I think the macro outlook is a pretty decent one. Overall, the US has shown and continues to show quite some growth resilience. Many indicators are actually suggesting either a pretty broad-based bottoming or or, um, or potentially even an uptick in momentum in Q1. If you look at ISMs, um, the variety of labor market data, but also commercial and industrial loan standards and so on. So we might be looking at the temporary reacceleration, but I also think that, you know, markets and analysts have swerved between a hard landing, a no landing, a soft landing, and so on. And I think that's kind of the theme that we are continuing to see. Now in the Eurozone, I think the situation is a little bit different. Um, the German um, industrial complex is pretty fragile right now. Um, but I also think that one shouldn't necessarily extrapolate Germany's weakness with um, other parts in the Eurozone economy, because there are signs that actually Spain, Portugal, Italy um, are doing reasonably well. Now, having said that, Europe is in a state of economic stagnation and actually has been for over a year. So the picture there does look a lot more precarious compared to what we are seeing in the U.S., but again, if you look at labor markets, for example, then, you know, they, they are holding up pretty well, including uh, the Eurozone. So it is a, a picture of, I think, relative resilience. But I think we also need to recognize that several indicators, particularly when you think about the optic in delinquencies, particularly in the US, but also what we are seeing in Germany, just shows that there is um, stress in parts of the economy, and that warrants a lot of monitoring going forward. So we also shouldn't take the eyes off the ball there. And how are you thinking about financial conditions? Many, myself included, thought when the you know when interest rates go from zero to five point five percent, that would represent a tightening of financial conditions, and it did. But it seems it's a little more complicated than that, and financial conditions are not sufficiently tight to plunge the economy into a recession, at least in the US. How are you thinking about financial conditions and what you see when you look at like the neutral rate versus other measures of how, how tight they are? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a key question that is on top of a lot of different people's minds and, and, uh, and asset allocators. So first of all, I do think that the neutral rate has risen after the pandemic for a variety of different reasons. The neutral rate, I think, is a, is a helpful academic concept, but I'm not sure um, that is, it is that all that useful in a practical um, uh, sense. And, and that is actually why I look a lot at financial conditions to better understand how loose 
are conditions, how benign is the financing environment that corporates and households face. And if you look at traditional measures of monetary policy tightness, so you know, where the policy is compared to estimated neutral rates, where real yields are, where the real yield curve is, where the Fed funds rate or the ECB rate is compared to inflation run rates, then a lot of these indicators would suggest that monetary policy is pretty tight. Now, when you look at standard measures of financial conditions, and you can look at uh, a whole bunch of those, there is not necessarily one that's you know right and, and the others are wrong. But when you look at a lot of them, then they do suggest that conditions right now are reasonably loose, actually. And so the question is, well, how can that be? How can you have what appears to be pretty tight monetary policy stance while at the same time having relatively accommodative financial conditions, particularly in the US? And I think there are a couple of um, aspects to this. First of all, of course, and you know, and, and many of your listeners know that the US is running an 8% fiscal deficit um, this year. The IMF estimates that actually the fiscal deficit is going to remain at roughly 7% um, for the foreseeable future. In the Eurozone, that's a bit different. Fiscal deficits are, you know, roughly 3% or so. So that, you know, explains a bit of the gap also in relative growth momentum that we are seeing. And compared to last year, actually, the fiscal thrust is pretty significant in the US and that has contributed to the growth environment there. Now, in addition, you have a lot of terming out of the debt. So, you know, there's just um, a pass through and a time lag whereby higher interest rates then really eat into the refinancing activities of corporates and so on. And, and you know that there is quite a bit of a corporate debt maturity wall coming towards us over the next two years or so where corporates will have to refinance actually currently pretty benign loan terms at significantly higher rates. So that, that is just a matter of time. But I think the third aspect, and I believe that is something that is commonly a bit uh, overlooked, is the central bank balance sheet, which is you know extremely sizable in many areas and many advanced economies of the world. That does suppress, artificially suppress where longer dated yields should be. And as a result, that inhibits the monetary policy transmission mechanism. And I think that's something where a lot of central banks will have to do a bit of soul searching going forward, whether this type and this size of balance sheet and the composition of the balance sheet is really warranted going forward and whether the footprint that central banks have in markets is really adequate and whether that actually doesn't complicate their uh, conduct of monetary policy further. A lot of questions for you. So Look at the financial conditions index. One of them is the risk-free rate, uh, the overnight rate, the 10-year rate. The central banks have complete control of the overnight rate. They have a lot of influence over the 10-year rate as well. A lot of the other variables in the financial conditions index, the Federal Reserve has much, much less control over. Mm -hmm. Some might say almost no control over. So that's credit spreads, investment grade, high yield, uh, loan conditions, the equity valuations, the value of in the US, the dollar versus other currencies, if the risk rate has gone so high, and that is a net tightening effect for the financial conditions index, why are the other measures net loose? Or, and what, how can you explain, for example, why your high yield spreads in the US are barely over 300 basis points and tightening conditions in, in the banking sector, at least in the US, have you know, they, they were tight a little tight last year that they're, they're easing. How, how do you explain that? I think it's a key question. And 
I think one of the uh, the shortcomings or the caveats of financial conditions is that ultimately they're endogenous in the sense that they drive growth, but growth also drives them. So if you have a nominal GDP growth environment of, in many instances now, way above 4%, 5 6 7%, then that is a pretty decent economic outlook for many firms and, and also households, particularly um, in the context of overall what appear to be pretty tight labor market. So I think it's difficult to disentangle what is the aspect of financial condition that drives growth and, and kind of what the push and pull factors are there. But I do think that when we come back to um, the influence of the balance sheet, if you have, for example, a Fed or, or an ECB that has clearly communicated that their reaction function has changed and that they have become more worried about the left tail growth risks as opposed to the inflation outlook, which in their view has had or has shown meaningful progress. And whilst the economy isn't slowing down sufficiently at that point in time, you effectively provide another financial conditions thrust that actually allows the inflation in, uh, momentum to reinvigorate. And if you think about the balance sheet, I mean, there are many estimates that actually suggest that the size of the balance sheet that we are seeing right now contributes to a suppression of longer dated yields by at least 100 basis points. In other words, even the Bank of Japan actually had a paper in 2021 that showed that the stock of its balance sheet suppresses 10-year JGB yields by more than 100 basis points, maybe up to 150 basis points. Um, a lot of investment banks have done research on this also on the Fed side. They come actually to a similar conclusion. A policy paper from the Bundesbank last year, at the end of last year actually also suggested that the way that lending standards and tighter lending standards are passed on to the real economy actually changes in a higher, in a structurally um, higher reserves regime. And they have argued that that is actually an explanation for why the tightness of monetary policy in the euro area may not be as significant as you would think, given you know, how quickly the tightening cycle has played out. And I think this is a live conversation right now at central banks right now, because the ECB is looking into the operational framework of monetary policy, and therefore it needs to think about the size, the structural size of the reserves going forward and the size of the balance sheet. And Fed Governor Barr, I believe earlier this week, also came out saying that, you know, the, the details and the specifications of QT are going to be under more scrutiny going forward. So I do think that central banks should really think long and hard around about whether this size of the balance sheet and owning 20% in the BOJ's case, 45% uh, of the entire free float of the domestic sovereign is really conducive to financial market functioning, ultimately, because it distorts the price of risk. Right. There's a huge binge of quantitative easing in the prior decade. A lot of central banks now are doing quantitative tightening, as you say, QT. In order to reverse that, they are letting their balance sheet shrink, not expand. I guess there are two philosophies. One is that it's the size of the balance sheet that matters. And second is that it's the rate of change of the balance sheet that, that matters. Wouldn't you say the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is so large, the ECB's balance sheet is so large, that is the absolute size, but they are attempting to shrink it. So what is the solution then? Just to, to shrink it more? They need to go, go yes. faster? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I mean, uh, no need to overcomplicate it. To be fair, the ECB was and has been and continues to be actually quite aggressive on the QT front. If you look at how they are approaching a lot of different things, but there are also many estimates that suggest that reserve scarcity um, in the Eurozone would only start to bite if you decrease the balance sheet by at least another trillion and potentially two trillion or so from here. So there's still, you know, quite a bit of leeway because again, I mean, we, we have seen just an amazing expansion of balance sheets, even pre-COVID and then even more so after COVID with all the combined fiscal uh, rescue packages. But yes, I, I do think that central banks should make an effort to try and reduce their balance sheets further. My current read of the Federal Reserve is that that seems unlikely. If anything, they're, I mean, they're trying to stop quantitative tightening to go back to reducing quantitative tightening and then having a flat balance sheet. So if that is true, and I, you tell me about the ECB, is that a stimulative force for the economy if, if central bank balance sheets are to remain somewhat large? I think at the margin, yes. I think it's too easy to just say, well, you know, it's a big stimulation because as you say, it's a question of the level as well as the rate of change. And as we discussed before, you know, it depends on the fiscal deficit, corporate capex spending and these types of things. It's too easy to just say, well, you know, central banks as a result are, are stimulative. But at the margin, yeah, I do, I do think that that's stimulative overall. What's going on with the European Central Bank? Because Patrick, earlier you said the Federal Reserve's uh, central banks switch from talking about only the right tail risk. In other words, inflation would reaccelerate and we'd go back to the 1970s. Now they're talking about a balance of risk. They're, they're aware of and they're making public statements about the left tail risk of a recession. That indicates they might try and loosen financial conditions by, by lowering interest rates, returning to a more neutral stance. And that is basically you know, that bullish for financial conditions. Uh, tell us about that's going on the, the European Central Bank. I admit I, I haven't been paying nearly as much attention to the European Central Bank, the ECB, as I should have. The last time I sort of did a deep dive, I remember they were so confident that there would be a recession in all of Europe that they were making infographics about rain clouds. And there was there was like, you know, rain and thunder coming on the European economy. Yeah. What's, what's going on now? Well, I also believe the reaction function of the ECB has changed. And there were several governing council members coming out in the recent months, including some of the more hawkish members that have said that, you know, the, the next step is going to be a rate cut and therefore, you know, have tried to tee up markets to price in such an expectation. And, and so the reaction function, I do believe, has changed on the back of what the ECB thinks is pretty meaningful uh, progress on the inflation front. I do think that um, whether they are ultimately able to follow through with the rate cuts really depends on the labor market and the wage outcomes that we will see over the next um, couple of months. In Germany, for example, the um, construction unions, the Union for Construction Workers, is demanding pay rises of slightly above 20%. Now, of course, that's part of a negotiation tactic. And typically, um, you know, what is demanded initially is not what gets settled and so on. But even if we assume that, you know, they get 5%, 6-7%, then, of course, that in and of itself is not necessarily representative of other sectors. But if other sectors also, you know, see 5%, 6% wage increases, then it just becomes very difficult to make a case that you'll be able to return um, inflation to close to but below 2% on a sustainable basis. So I think the rate cutting cycle to a large extent will depend on what the wage 
negotiation outcomes over the next couple of months will show. What's your outlook on interest rate? Where is the European rate, overnight rate right now? What is the priced into the forward curve about how much the ECB will cut? And your probable range, is it above, below, or pretty similar to the market's range? The OIS curve right now for the ECB prices around 105 basis points of cuts until the end of the year. Given you know how precarious the economic uh, outlook of the euro area is, I think that's roughly fair. And I also think it's roughly fair that there are more cuts being priced out in the US simply because there appears to be on an absolute level, uh, more strength, but also on the relative level in terms of momentum that the economy has. So I think that's roughly fair, what we are seeing right now. And of course, you know, once labor markets start to loosen, if they do, I think we also need to recognize that labor market adjustments are, are often nonlinear. And I think we also need to respect that when we think about the rates outlook, um, you know, longer dated yields, but also the central bank policy rate. Central banks, obviously, when they provide forward guidance, then they do that taking everything into account. But I think it's also clear that they will change their minds as the data develops. And I think should we see cracks in the labor market, then um, the central bank won't um, won't continue to say, you know, the inflation threats are, are so large and they will try and uh, provide at least less restrictive stances going forward. So 105 basis points of cuts to, to you, does that seem reasonable? Is your range in that ballpark or more or less and why? I would say so. I, I, I do think even if things go well and, you know, we, we do see a little bit of a bottoming in European growth momentum, then, you know, there's also scope to price out a bit more, almost an, uh, maybe not to the same extent as what we're seeing um, in the US right now. But I think it's it's roughly fair. And, you know, at the end of the day, whether you hike or you cut rates by 25 basis points or more, that really doesn't move the dial all that much. Like gold did, Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more. That's vanek.com slash hodlfg. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you can lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Patrick, now I want to connect two things. We're talking about uh, the level of overnight rates, the short term, and then the long term. In the US and, and much of the world, we have an inverted yield curve. So short term rates higher than long term rates. That's quite unusual. And it often has preceded a recession, at least in the US. I mean, the track record is actually pretty good. If you look at the three month, the 10 year, is that worrisome to you? In other words, that short term rates, the, the long end of the curve is telling you rates should be lower, but the central banks are keeping rates higher, and that is too restrictive. Or, and maybe one kind of escape route, is if central bank balance sheets are so large, it's actually sending a distorted signal because the real 10-year rate should be higher. It's just that they're suppressed because central bank balance sheets own so much of the bond market. I think it's probably a bit of both, to be honest. But then again, the yield curve inversions, they have had several um, false positives in the past. So for me, that's just it's just another indicator like like many other indicators. So I think 
one needs to evaluate the totality of indicators to make a better judgment of where we see things. But it is interesting that if you look at typical lead times of the inversion to when a recession happens, then you know, we are still in that time frame. Now, again, if I look at um, the totality of indicators in the labor market, ISMs, a lot of different uh, data aspects on the economy and on inflation, it doesn't look like we are in a, in a broad-based recession, at least, although certain segments um, of consumers probably do feel um, quite a bit of uh, economic pressure right now. But the yield curve inversion in and of itself is not a reason to have a recession. Having said that, I obviously you know, recognize that it has a pretty decent track record in the past, and so I'm not discarding it either. Um, but I think you know, it's, it's just another indicator that you need to keep an eye on. Patrick, so we've done a, a nice tour of the macro world. Can you tell, how does that inform the work that you do at, at Swiss Re? And if you're, you know, like, like Swiss Re does, managing a, a very large portfolio, it's not just about what your base case is, it's about those tail risks. So basically, tell us how your, your thinking applies to your work at Swiss Re. Yeah, totally. So as mentioned, we, I and the team, we established the longer term capital market assumptions that flow into the strategic asset allocation of the group. And we also provide the economic and interest rate assumptions that are used in the asset liability management uh, process and also flow actually into the pricing of insurance and reinsurance uh, contracts. So the views and the forecasts um, that we provide, they actually matter quite a bit for, um, for the balance sheet. We also provide alternative scenarios that can be you know, strategic in nature, if you like. So you know, we use them to evaluate our own uh, business strategy and these types of things, but they can also be um, regulatory in in uh, in nature, where we look at stress tests. You know, what would our liquidity and and solvency position be like um, if such stress tests were um, to become reality, and would we still um, be doing well? So, if we think about um, you know what is going on right now with inflation, recession risks, and so on, I think that is really important um, to think through um, what the implications could be. And I think one of the things that um, is really important for insurers to think about is not only whether inflation is going to be structurally higher going forward, but also whether inflation is going to be more volatile going forward. And actually, this is not even a hypothesis because that is what is priced into uh, medium to longer dated CPI options right now. It's really interesting that if you compare medium term CPI options right now in the US, then the, the median expectation has come down. So towards two, two and a quarter uh, percent. But the distribution of outcomes that is priced right now is actually a lot wider than even two years ago. And so when you think about portfolio construction, right? The, the very um, basic principle of portfolio construction with the efficient frontier is basically you have an expected return, you have expected volatilities, but you also have um, expected correlations, which are typically informed by, by past correlations and so on. And if you do have higher inflation volatility going forward, then I think a lot of investors will need to think about whether their um, investment portfolio is really fit for purpose because you will have much more frequent correlation changes between asset classes. And I think it's really important for investors to think through what are the alternative scenarios? What could the correlation regimes look like? What is the inflation regime um, overall? And how does that affect 
um, the balance sheet and are uh, you able to withstand these changes? Are you able to hedge what you can hedge um, and so on? And I think that's a, that's a really key um, aspect of, um, of what we help do, obviously, with a variety of other teams um, at Swiss Re. Thank you. And why is inflation volatility so salient for a large portfolio and, and for the insurance business? You talked about the uh, correlation assumptions between assets. What were you referring to there? Well, for example, simple simple stock bond correlations, right? But also correlations of alternative um, of alternative uh, assets and so on. And the reason why this matters a lot for insurers is because insurers are, through the nature of what they do, um, quite inflation sensitive. So when you think about, for example, motor insurance, right? Then you pay a motor claim that can be a repair cost, um, that can be a replacement cost of of a car. And if you have, for example, used car uh, price inflation going a lot higher, then that is um, price inflation that you need to pay out as an insurer. And the difficulty is that this type of insurance uh, related inflation is not something that you can hedge on capital markets because you cannot go out and buy, for example, um, inflation options or an inflation swap and say, well, you know, I've protected the balance sheet because the inflation that you have on the balance sheet as an insurer is one that is linked to motor insurance, uh, again, uh, you know, uh, replacement costs. It can be construction costs if you're more in, in other areas of property insurance. It can be linked to wage inflation. And these are to some extent linked to the overall inflation profile, but they are only proxies. And therefore, if you want to try and insulate the uh, inflation sensitivity of an insurance balance sheet, then you need to pull a lot of different levers in order to be ready to react to, um, you know, somewhat higher inflation volatility should that um, uh, occur. Thanks. That's on the insurance front. When it comes to assets and and correlations, what do correlations look like when inflation volatility is very low? And what does it look like when inflation volatility is high? For example, when in the US inflation went from 0% to 9% and back to 3%, what's different about that correlation regime between assets? The difference primarily comes through whether you can diversify um, risk across assets. So basically, usually when you have falling inflation, particularly from a higher level, and you have a rally Um, in bonds, then that provides some sort of diversification potential for other asset classes. Now, typically in a recession, you have a rally in bonds and you have a sell-off in, for example, credit and, and, um, and, and other risk assets like stocks. And that naturally hedges part of your portfolio. But if you have um, an acceleration of inflation, Um, as we had seen over the last couple of years, then what happens is that yields increase in government bonds. That means the prices decline. And at the same time, you at least during that period, we also saw that, for example, stocks declined and therefore you had a positive relationship between, you know, uh, uh, the bond prices and equity prices and therefore um, the diversification potential of going into stocks and bonds and other asset classes um, you know, is is pretty severely weakened. And I think if you have different levels of inflation and again, different um, inflation volatilities, I think you face an environment where these types of correlation relationships just change and flip m- much more frequently and therefore make the diversification process just a lot more challenging.
So how are you thinking about where inflation volatility will be? You referenced earlier that the market is pricing much higher inflation volatility in terms of options prices on the CPI. We can show that actually, you, you showed me this, that uh, now the range for CPI pricing is actually wider now, greater volatility than it was in June of 2022, when the price of oil was very, very high and inflation was very, very high. That is interesting to me. And so that's, we talked about what the market is pricing in implied volatility for CPI. What do you think it will realize and why? Well, I think there are a couple of structural factors and aspects, right? So when you think about a lot of things that have Re, you know, come out of COVID, a lot of um, manufacturers and a lot of companies are thinking about um, how can we future-proof our supply chain? So how can we make sure that, you know, supply bottlenecks and so on don't become a more recurring feature similar to what we had seen um, in 2020 and 2021? And that um, in and of itself could create some, uh, you know, inflation uh, bursts going forward. If you look at the geopolitical tensions that we are seeing, the Red Sea disruptions, where where you look at, um, you know, the, the Middle East tensions that um, occasionally flare up again, then you do see that also from a commodity perspective, um, a lot of commodity markets are actually susceptible to um, you know, higher spikes. If you think about the net zero uh, transition, which requires a lot of copper, and actually, um, it's not even clear whether um, the copper supply, you know, can resolve all the demand that should come out of the net zero transition, then you do see that there are a lot of potential triggers, yeah, to, to force such um, inflation spikes going forward. And I think that has been, obviously, some of these um, aspects were already prevailing uh, before COVID, but I do think that COVID has intensified this um, overall. If you look at how portfolio construction works, then I do think that a lot of insurers, as well as other um, investors, really need to think through whether they are able to withstand in their asset allocation large swings in inflation and not only a structurally higher inflation level and whether their um, diversification approach right now um, actually, you know, isolates them from inflation swings going forward. But whether that, you know, realizes or not, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. But I do think that it's, um, it's good to prepare and, you know, think through what the implications could be. You talked about the stock bond correlation. So definitely a lot of individual retirement accounts and RAAs, for example, that definitely changes if when stocks decline, bonds won't appreciate and, and yields won't fall as they did in 2020. That That is something of a of a shock when clients open up their uh, monthly portfolio statements. What about though for institutional in investors, uh, particularly in the insurance business? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think of insurance companies owning a ton of stocks. They de they definitely do, but it's often fixed income. Yeah. So that that asset can be a match to the liability of there for mostly fixed income portfolios. Uh, so not so much stocks. Are there differences there in the correlation regime when inflation volatility is higher? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. I mean, the way we look at this is from a total balance sheet perspective. So our assets support our underwriting uh, efforts, right? So the question for us is whether, for example, structurally higher inflation and higher um, inflation volatility, what does that mean, of course, for assets in and of themselves? But also, how do they interplay with um, the underwriting activities that we have seen? And that is what I mentioned before. When you have an inflation spike, then what ultimately trickles down into 
um, the books of an insurer depends on what the underwriting exposure is, is whether you are mostly focused on uh, motor insurance or, you know, uh, property um, and these types of things. So um, that just really depends. And so from our perspective, we look a lot um, at inflation and the potential implications, of course, from an asset side, but also what can we do on the underwriting side and what are the underwriting and asset side implications that you need to kind of marry and merge in order to kind of look at this topic in a pretty holistic way. That makes sense. But in terms of correlations between like credit risk and duration, where normally if the risk-free rate falls, spreads do X, but in an inflation volatility regime where inflation volatility is high, they they don't do that. Can you, can you give us some specifics on that or anything between, you know, the, I, I don't know, maybe the, um, if inflation volatility is high and rate volatility is higher, I imagined convexity risk is is higher so that figures into like mortgage backed security products and stuff like that yeah i mean that that could be now from a from an insurance um investor point of view because most of the rates exposure is basically used to match uh, the underwriting cash flow on the liability side that is not that big a deal if you look at the average insurance portfolio then uh, a lot of the credit exposure that many insurers have is investment grade. And therefore, if you see, um, you know, large volatility in either inflation, in rates, in economic outcomes, then typically that hits the weakest part of the capital structure the most, which is, you know, high yield or, or um, you know, um, 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 other non-rated uh, debt, maybe emerging markets, if that uh, spills over there. I can't speak for uh, for every insurer, obviously, but by and large, an insurance asset allocation is pretty conservative because the allocation serves uh, the underwriting um, uh, you know, strategy that a company pursues. I think from an insurance um, perspective, it, it should be okay from an asset management perspective. But again, I think the question is, how do you react to the claims inflation that ultimately you need to pay out? And, you know, um, how do you mitigate that? And what can you do, um, including from the asset side to, yeah, to safeguard that? Thanks for that, Patrick. Now, tell us about the your view on currencies and the, the euro versus the dollar. What's your view on that? And how has it is it shaped by the expectations of how much the Fed will cut versus the ECB will cut or versus the strengths in the economies and stuff like that? So first of all, by the way, um, at Swiss Re, currency is something that, or the currency risk is something that we try to minimize. So, um, you know, ideally we don't have active currency risk on uh, on our books. So that is not something that we have, besides obviously hedging uh, activities and so on, have a, uh, an outspoken view on. In terms of the currency and euro US dollar. Now, again, if, if I look at the um, relative momentum in, in economic growth and in inflation and so on, I do think that there is scope for a bit more dollar strength um, relative to, to Europe. But if you look at the last year or so, then a lot of the um, changes have actually been driven by the real yield differential between the US and, and, for example, Germany and so on. And right now, it seems like um, you know, the differentials are not uh, totally out of whack. So I, I think, you know, where we are right now is uh, is probably okay. But where a lot of this will ultimately boil down to whether the acceleration in inflation and PPI and so on that we have seen uh, very recently, whether that is 
a bit of a data fluke and driven by, you know, seasonal adjustments, January effect where a lot of prices are re-indexed and so on, or whether actually there's something more going on and actually, you know, the fundamental inflation process is gaining momentum and so on. But yeah, we'll just have to see over the next couple of months how that plays out. But yeah, given the precarious uh, situation of of the eurozone, I do think that there is scope for a bit of um, euro weakness going forward. You use the word precarious talking about the eurozone. Just how precarious is it? Earlier you said just because in Germany it's not looking so great doesn't mean that in Portugal and Italy and Spain things are looking a little bit better. But Germany is a large part of the economy, and you know maybe it's more manufacturing sector. And people say that manufacturing leads. I mean, I don't know if, if that's been true. What is your outlook on the, the European economy? It's actually um, a almost like a continued stagnation, to be honest. I mean, if again, the last five quarters were overall barely positive. And so I think it's not super helpful, in my view, to talk about, you know, two consecutive quarters and therefore a country or a region is in recession and so on. Labor markets are still pretty tight. And I think when we talk about recession prospects and so on, we really need to um, think through what are the what is the implication of a recession on the labor market adjustment uh, mechanism overall. And I think right now, personally, I thought the Eurozone was going to be in much more dire shape if I had known, uh, you know, how strong the monetary policy cycle is going to be and so on. I thought um, there was going to be a much deeper setback in um, Euro area growth momentum. So from a relative point of view, I think actually um, the Eurozone has done well. But I think, um, you know, the proof lies in the pudding and we haven't landed yet. Um, so I think it's also um, premature to declare all as well. We just need to see. Um, but we all know that, you know, in, in many instances in the Eurozone, particularly the southern countries now more in Germany, the pressures can arise uh, pretty quickly. So at this point, I am surprised by how well um, on a relative basis, actually, um, the Eurozone has managed to eke out some growth. Um, but again, I mean, this this totally pales in in comparison to what you're seeing in the U.S. So, you know, I, I would say some some cautious uh, optimism, hopefully. Sorry to interrupt. Just want to tell you about BlockWorks upcoming crypto symposium in London, the Digital Asset Summit, which is running from March 18th to March 20th. Everyone in crypto is going to be there, not just the experts and policymakers, but the real industry leaders writing the checks. Over $800 billion in assets is going to be represented. Anyone who's anyone in crypto is going to be there. So if you're into crypto and you haven't bought your ticket yet, the time is now to get your ticket. I would not wait any longer. We've got some exciting guests on the macro side too. Julian Brigden, Michael Howell. And yes, I can confirm at last the rumors are true. Joseph Wang, the Fed guy himself, is going to be there too. I'll be hosting a panel with these macro heavyweights that you don't want to miss. So be there or be square. Click the link in the description and use code FG10 to get 10% off. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So you said you don't put too much stock in the uh, consecutive quarter over quarter negative real GDP prints. I mean, I'd say in the U.S. we had that in the I believe the first half of 2022, and what followed was definitely not a recession. I mean, the unemployment rate stayed below four percent and continued to decline. How, how do you think what that means for Japan and and Germany and the U.K., where you know I, I at least everyone is talking about a recession. People on Twitter are saying the economy is in a recession. The unemployment rate is low and the stock market is not only at all time highs, but actively rising. How do you sort of think about that? I don't think it means much. I mean, look, um, if you have... You don't think the stock market the stock market means much or... or no, the, the label of a recession. 
the label of, I mean, if look, if, if you have, let's say, minus 0.2% growth in two quarters um, overall, then first of all, we need to recognize that national accounting has a lot of noise. So maybe it'll get revised away uh, anyway. Um, secondly, if you don't grow for half a year, it's not the end of the world. Um, I think I think at the end of the day, it really depends on, you know, you can, you can have a pullback in economic activity in one industry and that can then distort uh, the aggregate figures and so on. But I think as long as households are doing well, as long as the labor market um, is holding up well, I think the, the label of a recession is a bit misguided. Doesn't mean it can't, you know, intensify. And I think one should uh, be open to that. But just because an economy has two quarters of negative growth rates um, that are, you know, just barely below zero without an associated breaking up of labor markets and these types of things. Yeah, I think it's just misguided to, to, uh, to label it a recession. You don't think the term recession itself is misguided? You think that uh, two consecutive quarters of, of negative real GDP is not a slowdown if you don't have subsequent severe adjustments in the labor market. In other words, it's, it's all about the labor market and, and consumption. And, and the national accounts, there's a, there's a lot of wonky math in there that can make things look weaker than they are or stronger than they actually are. Basically, yes. Okay, that makes sense. Well, Patrick, it's, it's been great getting a chance to hear your views and hear your thinking. When it comes to macro, what do you think are some of the most common mistakes that people who are trying to do macroeconomic analysis make? That's a very actually profound question. I think there are a couple of points. First of all, I think, you know, mistaking correlation for causation, I understand why people do that, um, but it requires a lot of effort to better know what is the actual root cause of something because that then allows you to think through um, you know, what uh, the ultimate outcomes could be. The other one is often groupthink. Um, you know, obviously people are influenced by what a reputable institution says and so on. And even though they see it differently, they might not be able to voice that or don't want to voice it for a variety um, of reasons. And I think the other one too is to, you know, just be open-minded enough. Again, think about scenarios Forecasts are useful as an anchor, but they are not um, the absolute end result. So I think, you know, if you have a forecast and analysis, then it's important to think through what the yardstick is, but it's also important to think through what are the mechanics so that your, um, you know, prescribed forecast actually comes to fruition. And, and that is why I, I really think that scenario thinking and so on is just extremely valuable to constantly question yourself, you know, this is my view, but I'm, I might be wrong or most likely I'm wrong. So what could the alternative um, reality really look like? Yeah, and I think once um, you manage to have a balance um, across all of that, then I think um, you will ultimately become a better um, analyst. And hopefully you can translate then that also to better um, you know, strategic decision-making, portfolio outcomes, and so on. That correlation versus causation uh, point is, is so true. I think often it's people, people ask, well, low rates are stimulative, but actually they aren't because you know during a recession, there tend to be low rates, but a recession causes low rates, but then low rates can cause coming out, come out of the recession and the same term with, with, with high rates. So, so Patrick, I just want to say, like uh, when you look at the assumptions about soft landing, no landing, 
uh, uh, hard landing. And, it, you know, you, you said uh, you don't really like the term recession. So I can't even imagine what you, you know, you think of those, those landing words. They are kind of unhelpful, but everyone uses those words. So when you look into what is, is priced into markets, the soft landing has become much more uh, dominant view, at least in the US, than it was six months ago. I can't say about what percentage view it is, but I just, I can't talk about the rate of change. Like the stock market is up, inflation has fallen, yields have gone down. Does that make sense to you? In other words, the balance of risks kind of implied by the market makes sense to, to you? And how are you sort of thinking about the balance of risk? So the base case is a soft landing in the US, but I think the two primary alternative scenarios are obviously a stagflation type of outcome as well as a recession. And I do think that at the current juncture, actually, you can make a pretty decent case for both. Because on the one hand, you see some sort of reacceleration, you see um, inflation picking up, and you know you see actually wage growth um, increasing. On the other hand, if you adjust for seasonal adjustments, if you look at delinquency rates that are um, actually from a level as well as from a momentum perspective picking up pretty quickly, then you can also take the other view and say, look, you know, this can easily go the other way. I think it's important to uh, be open-minded and have an action plan for when you realize that you are going to shift um, with an increase in confidence into one scenario versus uh, the other. And, you know, again, market pricing has been reasonably erratic and, and analysts have been swerving between all these um, different um, uh, descriptions. So I think it's just important to keep that in mind. You know, how do you react from one thing to the other? And there's also a difference between you know, what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks versus what's going to happen in half a year or a year and so on. And I think it's also important to not let the immediate data and the immediate price action um, determine and cloud your longer term thinking um, all too much. Um, but of course, you know, we will and I will uh, update my views as we get more information. And, and um, you know, we're, we're all data dependent at the end of the day. So I think it's just about being open to, to revising your view if you see that the evidence speaks in favor of one thing or the other. Mm. Thank you, uh, Patrick. Uh, people can find you on Twitter at Patrick underscore Sonner. Uh, my, my final question for you, Patrick, is, you know, you've had a storied career before your work at Swiss Re. You were at the, the World Bank, uh, UBS, and the Swiss National Bank. My question is about the Swiss National Bank. A lot of my show is focused on central banking. Can you just share what is the mindset uh, of folks who typically work within the Swiss National Bank or, or a central bank? And, you know, having done a lot of work in the private sector, is there a different kind of mindset between you know, working at a central bank when you're working at a bank or a uh, other type of commercial private financial firm? Yeah, there is. And hopefully there is because um, they serve different purposes. Um, look, at the end of the day, if you're thinking about a public sector institution like the Swiss Central Bank or, or, or the World Bank, then you are serving the people. Now, of course, in the private sector, you're also serving the people, but, but, but you're decisions are extremely influential for a lot of different stakeholders. And that can be households, that can be corporates and so on. So you need to be extremely rigorous and thoughtful in terms of how you approach the data and, and, and what the implications of your actions could be on a, on a huge variety of stakeholders. I can't speak for, for other central banks, but the people at SNB that I met are extremely sharp. They're, they're very intellectually curious, and they also look at a lot of things in really great and fantastic rigor. And the reality in the private sector is often that 
the resources are scarce and you need to focus on what is most pressing for a company or your strategic initiatives and you, you need to try and deliver that. So I think it's just um, a slightly different mindset. Uh, but I do think that, um, you know, you can learn a lot having been at the public sector in terms of how to think about certain things, how to think about rigor um, and, and how to think about um, the implications of your actions, if you like. There we go. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your, your insights. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. A reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.